Can a marriage survive infidelity? We dig deep to explore this thorny question. Join me, Jean-Claude Chalmet, and founder of The Place Retreats and a featured columnist for The Times, with Amy Cooper and Louise Daniels, on The Place Retreats podcast. Search Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite Android app. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome back to your next episode with me, Louise. And me, Amy. And today our guest is Catherine Mannix. Uh, Catherine is a palliative care doctor and author of the best-selling book, With the End in Mind. Um, in which she sheds a light on death and ways of dying um, through the stories of, of those that, that she supported. Hello, hello, Catherine. Hello, both of you. Hi. How are you? Good. Good, thank you. Yeah, very good. Um, and this isn't going to be like a, a, a... I think this can sound like a bit of a grim, miserable um, topic, but actually... the. The more I sort of have done you know, researched it, I've I've realised that yeah, it's I, it, it's yeah really important to talk about because you know one hundred percent we are all going to die, so you know it, it's something you know that is is certainly worth um, uh, having a discussion about. So, uh, but how did you come to write the book with the end in, in mind, Catherine? Can you explain how that happened first of all? Yeah, so I was working in palliative care. And I, I worked in palliative care for thirty years, and mm. absolutely loved it. And when I first started in palliative care, the notion was that within a decade, we would have educated the workforce into being able to do good symptom management, which is what palliative care actually is, isn't care of dying people. It just so happens that a lot of the people who need symptom management because their illness can't be cured also mm, go right. on to die whilst we still are contributing to their care. So we, we see a lot of death and dying, but it's not usually why we're involved in people's care. And right. it was hoped that, you know, um, general practice and surgeons and oncologists and heart specialists, we, we would be able to just kind of give the knowledge base over to the rest of the workforce and we wouldn't need palliative care anymore but of course what happens is once a specialty establishes itself it starts to get inquisitive about how to do things better so the body of knowledge gets bigger and bigger and the expertise mm -hmm. grows so eventually there's too much to add on to another person's job for them to be able to do that so it became a specialty in its own right mm -hmm. and 30 years after I started one of the things that I noticed was that people are still not able to talk about the very end of life. They still don't know what to expect. 
they're still frightened that it's going to be like it is in soap operas or on on cinema screens mm. and it makes them so frightened that they don't talk about it and then nobody's ready when the end that's been very obviously approaching arrives right uh, and one particular family triggered that for me in in the hospital um family who arrived with a very very elderly man who'd been having a uh, cardiopulmonary massage from the ambulance crew cpr from the ambulance crew uh, on his way in and by the time they got him into the hospital this man is the you know the, the wires over his chest showed that his heart was working again in that the rhythm had restarted but it just was so knackered that it mm. wasn't pumping effectively and he clearly was going to die sometime during that day and he was there with his wife and his sons and you know the guy was in his 90s so the sons were in their 60s and 70s and I said to them, you know, what did your dad say he would ever want to happen? Because mum was over, you know, just being tender with dad, having this moment. I said to the sons, what, what did your dad say mm. he would want to happen if he became so sick that he could die? And they just looked at me like I was speaking a foreign language. And it had never been discussed. <laughs> yeah. And then one of them said, oh, we don't talk about things like that. Um, <laughs> and then one of them just i saw his eyes start to fill with tears and he said actually dad did try to talk to me about this yeah and i said oh dad don't be so maudlin and i changed the subject and then he yeah. started to you know that man cry thing of i'm you know i'm not crying yeah. and then his brother tried to comfort him and and that in itself was interesting because his brother came to stand side by side with him so they were f both facing the same direction they weren't looking at each other his brother just stuck his arm out and patted him on the shoulder oh. and then said do you know what it, it wasn't just you dad asked me if i'd fill in one of those attorney documents so that mum wouldn't have to be the only person making decisions and i said dad you're gonna live forever oh and uh, so we we created the space and looked after this family and 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 the dad died quite comfortably and peacefully with his sons and his wife with him mm. over the course of that day, looked after by mm. the emergency department staff who, it, despite being incredibly busy, do end-of-life care incredibly well. And moving this man from one part of the hospital to another part of the hospital didn't seem to be the right thing to do. So so that's the story of that family. And, and I kind of went away and I just couldn't get them out of my mind mm. because mm. I couldn't believe that we're still having those conversations and we're having those conversations with people who you know three generations ago would have known all about dying would have recognized the yeah, process yeah. Uh, wouldn't have shied away from talking mm. about it and I started thinking you know this this isn't something we can solve anymore one family at a time this is a mm. national cultural Disaster. thing isn't it yeah, yeah yeah it's somebody's got to do something about the public understanding of dying it's a public health issue mm -hmm. really so i'm kind of walking around the hospital and and and, and ruminating on this i'm thinking you know, it needs to be somebody who understands about the process of dying who's seen it a lot of times obviously but also seen it in different contexts because looking after somebody who's dying at home you know families make heroic promises oh yes we will we'll keep you at home 
But actually, sometimes it's a long haul and it's mm. really hard work mm. and people get very, very tired. So you don't want somebody making fancy promises. You want somebody who understands what looking after people dying at home can be like. Mm. And you need somebody who uh, has worked in a hospice and understands what hospices really do. Um, mm. And of course, most deaths are in hospital and you need somebody who understands how hospitals rise to that and, and can describe how it can be managed and turned into a personal experience, even if it is in a big, busy hospital ward. Yeah. Uh, you know, somebody, somebody, somebody needs to do something about the public understanding of dying. <laughs> Gradually, it just kind of occurred to me that I just described it's my job you. description. <laughs> yeah. And I have to say, my heart sank. I, I, it didn't it didn't make me rejoice in any way. I just, oh, you know, now, now I think <gasps> that maybe I've got something to contribute to this. I can't. Yeah not do it but I really yeah. wish I didn't have to do it um and then I couldn't work out how how would you even do it anyway so maybe I don't have to do it so there's all of this yeah. kind of self-talk going on <laughs> yeah 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 I don't have to do it and in the end I just thought do you know I'm not going to be able to work out what needs to happen here unless I create this space so I took yeah. early retirement and we we did the calculations and we made sure that we wouldn't have to starve the children and we could still afford the mortgage and things like that <laughs> and um, I took early retirement to just make the space and it turned out that yeah. the space was made for a really good luck encounter where I got asked to do something on Radio 4 uh, talking about dying I told the story of a, of a particular person a literary agent heard the radio program and approached me and said I heard you tell a story um, you sound like a storyteller. Have you got other stories? Yeah. And then he helped me to make a book proposal and it became with the end in mind. Fantastic. Well, that was all meant to be, wasn't well, it? Well, it, it now you... was very good luck. <laughs> yeah, and, and you speak to people as well, don't you? It's brought other, other things about for you as well, is that right? Well, that's right. right. So it, mm. it kind of creates a platform, doesn't it? If you, if, you, yeah. if you write a book, I mean, I wrote a book and I thought it might be in a few libraries, to be honest. I wasn't mm. expecting yeah. what happened when the book came out. That, yeah. that completely blew me away. And I, I think that the, the public reception of the book and it getting onto the, the Welcome Prize shortlist just gave it a, a profile mm. so that meant that then I got invited to book festivals and public speaking events and that was the that was the audience that I felt I needed to talk to not not medical people yeah. Mm. all yeah, of us yeah. mm, and then the correspondence yeah. started the letters started coming in yeah. and that was amazing really yeah. um humbling and poignant yeah. these letters from people saying I watched my beloved person die 10 years ago and um, making those noises that you describe meaning that mm. the person is unconscious and I didn't realize that I thought they were struggling I thought they were yeah. sighing yeah. I thought they were in yeah. agony um yeah. one one lady said I, I've slept through the night for the first time in 10 years since I read your chapter oh, that describes oh, normal dying. Catherine, how I amazing. That, so that isn't that just yeah, fantastic. Yeah. I bet you could write another book based on the experiences that you've had since writing the book. You well, know, yeah. Yes, I, I felt like I was living in a parallel universe. Mm. I kept thinking, you know, if somebody wrote this down, nobody would actually believe it. Yeah. But the thing that has become clear to me from the correspondence from readers is that 
there is a need for educating everybody but of mm. course everybody includes people who go on to train to be nurses and doctors and, yeah. and healthcare professionals because none of us is familiar with dying no. and the training uh, teaches you to stop people dying it doesn't say yeah. you know once it's okay for somebody to die once it's allowed yeah. this is what yeah. it looks like and this is yeah. how you can ensure the person is comfortable and contented and, and yeah. all the rest of it so yeah it's become clear and the thing I hadn't expected at all was medical people, medical schools, nursing schools, paramedic mm. schools, using the book as a textbook, as exemplars yeah. for how to have those conversations. Yeah. So it's been extraordinary, wow. really extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Lots of things that you're saying. I, I, I don't know if I explained to you before, I'm an antenatal teacher and a birth doula um, as well. And um, there are so many things that you you know that you're saying about that it, it, about death that are very similar to birth you know in that for example um you know uh, people used to have their babies at home it was it was something we would grow up sort of being aware of you know um because it would be around us you know and the same with dying mm. um and you know birth as well is now very medically managed it's seen as you know something that where you go to a hospital and, and and you do that and sometimes that's that's really necessary but there's a real like n sort of lack of discussion around it i mean it's happening more now but but uh, do you see what I mean? Oh, that that not only do I see what you and, mean, I, I talk yeah. about it. I talk about midwifing dying when I'm on, oh. on a public platform oh, or, right. or, or to medical people. And, and the phases are so similar. There's a kind of mm. antenatal care phase that mm. ensures mum and baby are as well as they can be and as prepared as they can be for delivery. And then that mm. same person who's done all the preparation narrating delivery with you. This is what's happening now. This is that thing that we talked about. Yeah, yes, it yes, doesn't feel yeah, like you expected yeah. it to feel like, does it? But it's okay and you're safe. And yeah, I know it hurts like hell, but actually it's okay. You're doing fine. This is normal. Mm. Baby's safe. You're safe. That kind of sense of safe giving mm. birth. We mm. can absolutely transfer that and say there's an antenatal period for dying mm. when whatever yeah. health conditions you've got are ramping themselves up and they can't be held back anymore. Mm. And what becomes important now is managing your symptoms, keeping you as healthy as you can be within the confines of the illness that you've got and preparing you for what will happen to you, what your family will see if you choose to allow them to be present around you as you're dying, so there are no surprises. And then mm -hmm. as the dying is happening, narrating it in real time to those people around the bed yeah. so they don't yeah. hear those noises and think, this is terrible, this person's in agony, this person's choking, yeah. because that isn't yeah. what's, happening. what's happening. Yeah. yeah. No. So it's so parallel. Uh, obviously, we've talked about the, the parallels between birth and death. And I, I remember my birth plan. I might as well have just, uh, you know, ripped it up and start, uh, and just thrown it away. It just didn't go th that way to plan at all. Um, but I guess if you do have somebody there who, who can say, this isn't exactly as we spoke about it, but this is, uh, this is all okay. It's okay. Um, I guess every process will be different. Um, but could you just talk us through sort of like, uh, what the person dying can expect and those with them, their families, their loved ones, you know, what, what will they see? What will they hear? You know, is it, is it scary and dramatic or actually quite a calm atmosphere? Yeah. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, to think about that and the parallel again with, with birth and two things that we can 
do all of the planning expecting what would be normal, but mm. during the planning also gathering what's really important to this person. So if things don't go according to plan, at least we know what are the essential values to try and preserve for them during yeah. that, whether mm. it's giving birth or whether it's dying. But also the idea that th these are bodily processes, these are physiological processes, and every body does the process in a very similar way. And everybody knows about birth. And every mm. person who's given birth feels that she's had a unique experience. And she has because it was her and it was that baby or those mm. babies. Um, but every midwife or doula in attendance has seen the same process that we always see when somebody's giving birth. Different stage of it maybe last a bit longer or you know there'll, there'll be individual variations but the process is very similar isn't it? we know mm. what follows what follows what mm. so when people are reaching the end of their lives we see again a very similar pattern and it's interesting that it doesn't seem to matter what the illness is if you're dying from you know your heart failure or your lungs are giving out or you've got cancer or you've got a neurological disease towards the end of life what seems to happen is that people just get tired your, mm. your metabolism doesn't give you enough energy anymore and mm. the thing that is the antidote to that to some extent is sleep so sleep becomes really important and you hear a lot of people trying not to have naps because in some way it's a weakness and it's giving in. Mm. No, sleep is absolutely your friend now. Have a sleep. If you're expecting an important visitor and you want to be alert for that, recharge your batteries with a snooze and you will be much more able to deal with that visitor. If your grandchildren are coming round to use you as a climbing frame because that's what granddads are for, have a snooze before they come round so that mm. you've got, you know, some minutes of energy and enthusiasm when they first arrive mm. and then gradually your yeah, energy gives out and you can't quite stay awake so easily and you're going to go back to snoozing again mm. so that's that's the early stages of it and in fact most of us have had that experience anyway if we've been really ill with flu um mm. you know you can hardly stay awake you're so tired you can get up mm. stagger to the kitchen you stick the kettle on and you've got no energy left for actually making the brew yeah. <laughs> you just go and have a lie down and then come back yeah. again so so that's a common experience in serious illness that tiredness and the antidote to its sleep alternate with each other and as time goes by we find that the periods of being asleep last longer and the periods of being awake are shorter mm. and some people might even find that there are periods of being not quite awake and not quite asleep where people are a little bit muddled can't quite get names right can't remember where they put things those sorts of things and and the muddledness itself is it's safe it's okay um mm. we need to be able to reassure people that it's okay not to be able to remember and when you're a little bit more awake it will it will become clearer and then yeah. an interesting thing happens, which is people start to dip into unconsciousness while they're asleep. So when they wake up, they tell us they've had a nice sleep. We don't notice when we become unconscious, which is why it's called unconscious, I suppose. Mm. Um, but the thing is that we will know that because we've tried to wake you up because that visitor you were waiting for has arrived or the phone call you wanted to uh, talk to this person they've called and we can't wake you up or it's medicine time mm. 
And that's important because actually dying itself doesn't cause any symptoms other than increasing sleepiness and then some breathing changes that I'm going to talk about in a minute. But it doesn't cause pain or breathlessness or nausea or anything like that. But we'll all be dying of something. Mm. And the illness itself might be causing symptoms. And again, during the antenatal period, if you like, getting really good management of those symptoms is one of the ways that we ensure that Mm. the deathbed is a comfortable experience because we now know what are the symptoms that might bother you and how to manage them for you. So if we can't wake you up when it's medicine time and you've got an illness that causes you to have breathlessness or pain, we don't want by the time you wake up your last dose of medicine to have worn off and you wake up and your pain has come back or you're, or you're feeling really breathless again. Yeah. So now we'll swap and we'll give those medicines a different way, usually by injection. Usually it's a tiny little needle under the mm-hmm. skin. Isn't painful to do. And if we know this person needs regular repeated doses, we stick it in a little syringe pump. And a lot of people have seen little syringe drivers. And they're just trickling the medicines in that you would normally take over 24 hours anyway. And can that be done at home? That can be easily done at home. They're they're battery-driven devices. The nurse will call daily to check the battery. Um, She will call as often as is necessary to to change the contents of the syringe inside. Um, Hmm. It's it's easy-peasy to do it at home. You don't need to be in hospital Uh for this kind of care. And so now we have a plan in place, which is the person's background symptoms are being managed in the way we've always managed them, but maybe using injections instead of swallowing the medicines. They're coming in and out of consciousness until eventually they're just unconscious all of the time. Mm. The two really important things about this. The first is unconsciousness is not the same as sleep. If you feel well enough to be sleepy and you'd really love a snooze, you're well enough to have a snooze and wake up again because becoming unconscious doesn't feel like going to sleep. It's a completely different process. And we won't notice unconsciousness happening. But I meet Mm. a lot of people who've been told not to worry about dying because you won't be awake when it happens. And they have assumed that that means they'll be asleep when it happens. So now they're terrified to go to sleep. Oh, God, all of these things, yeah, that... So language really matters, doesn't it? Words matter, yeah. 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 Mm. So there's this creeping unconsciousness that we are unaware of. And once we're fully unconscious, the only bit of the brain now that's still really working is the bit that manages our breathing. It's right down at the back at the bottom of the brain, kind of top of the spinal cord, very primitive part of the brain. Everything else has stopped. And now the breathing just runs in reflex cycles. And this happens to anybody who is unconscious. You see that the breathing moves between being periods of being very deep and gradually becomes more and more shallow and then moves back to being deep and backwards and forwards like that. And also it alternates between being fast and being slow and then moving back again. And because we're just completely unconscious, we're not aware of what we're doing with our throat, it's possible that people will breathe out with their vocal cords a little bit closed over, which makes a voice sound. So they might breathe out and it sounds like a sigh or a, or a groan. But in right. fact, it's a sign that they're deeply unconscious. But imagine how upsetting it is to be by the bed if nobody's yeah. explained that to you. No. 
And then similarly, at other points in the cycle, it might be that the breathing is quite fast, but quite shallow, and it sounds like panting. And you could easily think that person was struggling to breathe, unless somebody Mm. had told you that this is part of the automatic breathing of deep unconsciousness. Mm. And perhaps the most important noise to explain at all, uh, of all, is, is the noise they call the death rattle. Yeah. Now, we know when people are so unconscious that they can't even feel their back of their throat anymore, that you or I, if we had, you know, a little bit of tea or toast crumb at the back mm. of your throat, cough and mm. you, you retch and you clear your throat and you, it's unbearable to have mm. that sense of something touching yeah. the back of the throat because it's a really primitive reflex to protect our airway. Once the brain is completely switched off, those sensations are no longer coming up into the brain and the back of the throat is just being ignored. So now if there's a little bit of phlegm or saliva or, you know, we like to keep people's uh, mouths clean and moist, so a little bit of the fluid that we've been using for the mouth care can easily trickle to the back of the throat and it doesn't cause coughing or swallowing or anything like that. It just lies there. It doesn't get in the way of the breathing but the breathing is coming in and out of the windpipe through this little film of fluid. So it bubbles through. It's what gas does in a liquid, isn't it? And the bubbling noise sounds like this kind of strange clicking, rattling noise. And you never, ever hear it under any other circumstances. Mm. You only hear it when somebody's breathing through fluid at the back of their throat because they're deeply, deeply unconscious. Now, that really frightens families. What does this mean? What's going to happen next? Um, And for for many years, we've used drugs to try and dry saliva so that that doesn't happen. But in fact, those drugs make everything a little bit dry. And so in the periods where somebody rouses again, they'll find they've got a really claggy, dry mouth. That's really unpleasant. Um, So actually, I think the really best treatment for that is to be explaining to families that this noise noise (laughs) tells me that this person you love can't even feel their throat anymore. No, they are so deeply no. unconscious. They are not sensitive to any distress at this point. Yeah, they're not in any distress at all. And and actually, you can just leave it. It's a reassuring you, yeah. noise. It's, yeah. 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 I'm sure there's so many people who are listening to this, Catherine, who have been sat at their loved one's bedside. And like you said about somebody who had the best night, or actually slept through for 10 years because they've been so sort of mm. subconsciously troubled by that. So thank you for that. I'm sure that I'm mm. sure that lots of people who are having like a a moment now of, of thinking, oh, like reframing that whole experience. I, I, I really hope so, because it's so important, isn't it? And I really mm. invite people who've seen this normal mm. dying uh, right up to the, the the point where in the cycle it just starts to have pauses, increasingly long pauses, and then there'll be a breath out that just doesn't have another breath in after mm. it. You know, it's as unremarkable as that. Yeah. The last breath yeah. is only the last breath because you realise there isn't another breath. Whereas yeah. on soap operas, it's always dramatic and there's arms yeah, waving around or somebody yeah. sits up to tell you you were adopted or, or, or whatever <laughs> it is. You know, it's just not like that. Um, so presumably there's no nobody really ever has their last words, you know. Uh, do you know what I mean? Well, of course they do have their last words, but do you know what I mean? When you hear of people on their deathbed, that's that's all just in films, really, well, isn't it? Well, do you because... know what? It's a really, really rare but real phenomenon. So every now and again, there's this really strange thing 
where somebody who's been unconscious for a while mm. rouses and chats or rouses and smiles and makes eye contact with their family and smiles mm. just mm. before they go into that very last set of breaths. It's very, very oh. unusual, but yeah. it, it seems to be a thing. And the problem is families think, because that's what's on cinema, that they can yeah. say all those I love you's during yeah. that interval. And for most families, that interval isn't going to happen. But the, the thing I would really appeal to all, all of your listeners to think about is if you've seen that process of normal dying, that gentle changing of, of the breathing and eventually that just stopping breathing thing. I've had lots of people say to me, oh, you know, when, when my so-and-so died, it was really lovely, actually. I, you know, I feel, it feels a little bit silly to say it was really nice, but actually mm. it was. And I don't ever tell anybody how lovely it was because I know usually it's terrible. And we were so lucky that mm. this person died in that way and we, we were there and we saw how gentle it was. But I never tell anyone. Oh, please, please tell people yeah. what you yes, saw was normal people. dying. Mm. That's what it's almost always like. And actually, again, going back to the parallels with childbirth, the thing that's made mm. the biggest difference to standards of childbirth in this country is that women know what good, well-managed, uninterfered mm. with, but interfered with appropriately when necessary childbirth looks like, and they're demanding it. Yeah. And we need to do yeah. the same for dying. We need people to know what it, it, it should be like and demand no. it. But what you're saying about, you know, um, telling a positive death story um, is uh, when I have uh, reunions for my um, antenatal groups, um, if there is usually there will be somebody within those eight or nine couples who hasn't had a positive birth experience. And and what I've noticed is that then anybody who has keeps very mm. quiet about their because, of course, they don't want Being to sensitive. they don't yeah. want to upset that person. They don't want to be insensitive. Exactly what you mm. were saying. But it, it, there's so many parallels, yeah, aren't there? It's, it's just. Yeah. And there are legal issues around uh, decision making uh, as well that, that are really important to discuss. So, so let's yeah. You know, so hopefully people will start having those discussions about what you know the normal process of dying is, and it's not like we see it on on the television. It's not scary and dramatic. Um, but then there are legal issues as well that are important to discuss, aren't there? So you know, and um, you know, I. Really, before I started researching, you know, this interview today, I would have just thought, oh, well, you know, doctors will decide and that's that. Um, but there are definitely things that we that we should consider, aren't there? What Could, could you yeah. explain some yeah. of those? So things? if you go back to that family in, in the emergency room and I'm saying to the sons, what did your dad say mm. he would have wanted? Well, the first thing is they have no idea because they've never talked about it. So mm. the first step in having any kind of the loosest possible plan is to have said to your family at some point, you know what, when I'm so sick that people think I'm dying, uh, if it's possible, I'd prefer not to have to be in the hospital or I definitely not want to still be in the house because it would be too much for your mum to bear or whatever. So just just expressing your preferences is a really good opening step. Yeah. So when you're saying about you, people might say, I don't want to be in the hospital, I don't want to be at home. Is a hospice then a kind of middle ground for... Oh, OK, so yes and no. 
Oh, okay. So hospices. Let's let's do hospices because hospices need okay. to be thought about. So, yeah. so there, there are enough hospice beds in in our country that uh, something like five percent of deaths can happen in a hospice. Right. Okay. So if we wanted everybody to die in a hospice, we're nowhere near the number of beds. But hospices mm. are not end of life nursing homes. Hospices are symptom management specialist units and most hospices have a discharge rate from first admission of more than 50 percent so people go in to have a really difficult pain problem tackled or there's been a really specific uh, family dynamics difficulty maybe somebody's seen a very traumatic death and they're all very frightened of keeping this person at home and actually the the way to be able to help them to work through that is to provide the safe space where it can happen while you work through it all. And then people say, actually, do you know what? We could take her home, really, couldn't we? And we go, yeah, you could, mm. couldn't you? So, I see. So yeah. uh, the hospices, if you like, are the intensive care units for people whose illness is not going to get better, but managing their symptoms is going to enable them to live a lot better for whatever time is left. And most hospices have a group of of patients who will be coming in and out, perhaps being followed up as outpatients, or perhaps community palliative care nurses will be visiting them at home because their particular set of symptoms is more challenging than services as usual can manage. Right. Okay. Okay. So you can't just say, oh, I'd like to die in a hospice because actually if the only thing that's happening to you is that you're dying, it's not complicated enough to merit the expertise of a hospice bed. So that begs another question. If we need extra help so we can't stay at home and we don't want to be in the high-tech environment of a hospital, which actually isn't usually the best environment for dying in, and hospice mm. beds are scarce and for a very particular set of circumstances. Yeah. What is the answer for that? Do yeah. we need to reinvent some other location of nursing care, residential care, where families can come and go, where symptom management as is needed can be provided, but where you mm. can stay now until the end of your life? Because that's not a facility that we've really got available anywhere. So that's something to think yeah. about. Well, I suppose then staying at home would be, well, I mean, it's individual choice, isn't it? But um, but also perhaps people would be happier to stay at home if they, were if they understood with, yeah. a little bit more. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's all interlinked, this, isn't it? It's yeah. all, it yeah. all is. How can you decide whether or not you want a home birth if you don't know no. about giving birth? No. Yes. Yeah. Okay. It is the same conversation, isn't it? So, if yeah. so, there are two bits of of it for dying, I suppose. One is that um, this is what this is what ordinary dying is like, and this is what we're expecting for you, and this is what your family will see if they're around you. Now, actually, where the bed is turns out not to be very important. When uh, there's some like, very nice research about this, which says that actually at the end of life, what matters to people is who's there not where the bed Mm. is. So although we think we'd like to be in such and such a place, it turns out not to be such a big deal 
when no. when it's actually happening. And I guess some of the difficulty with this, it's probably quite difficult to do that research because obviously the person who can give us all those answers has died. Yeah. Getting them in that window where perhaps they, they could express what would be the most important thing to them. I guess after that ship has sailed, it's impossible to know. That's a really good point, Amy, because one of the things that we do know from doing research with bereaved relatives about what was the experience of the person who died is that they're speaking through the lens of their grieving. Yeah, yeah. and their shock, um, probably, yeah. Yeah, and, and so there's, there's, there's research that shows that the more stressed a person who's been a carer is feeling, the less in tune with the lived experience mm. of the person they're looking after they are, and that might yeah. go in one of two directions. It might make them over-perceive distress and discomfort, so they think the person's pain is very much worse than the person scores it. Mm. And the other thing that it can do is it can blunt them to it. They're so stressed that even though this person is really uncomfortable, they're kind of not seeing it, they're, they're tuning it out. So it's possible then that they also don't, for example, let the district nurse or the GP know that the, this painkiller isn't working as well as it should do because they right. can't bear yeah. the distress of recognising the extent of the pain. Mm. So yeah. you're right, the, the way to find out the lived experience is to actually be able to talk to people towards the very end of their lives. And we're talking about planning. One of the things that we know is that if you ask most people where they'd like to die, you know, if we go down the high street today and bump into people and say, oh, I'd like to talk to you about dying, then if they don't run away, then <laughs> they, they will almost certainly say, do you know what, I think I'd really like to be at home. Yeah. But if you talk to somebody who now has the illness from which they are dying and you ask them where they'd like to be, they now want to be in a place that will enable them to be safe from symptoms and look after their families. And yeah. if that care can be provided at home, and there can be additional resources brought in to support the families. Most people would like that, but some people don't want their, fam their family home turned into a care centre that's like mm. a central station with all these people coming and going, they're really clear that if it's got to be as busy as that, they want to be in a different place. So right. people do change their minds. And yeah. a lot of the research is based on asking healthy people where we'd yeah. like to die. And yeah. we do change our minds. Yeah, of course, of course. And I was thinking about the family in the emergency room. And I guess if your relative doesn't want to talk about that and refuse like those 60 year old sons of the 90 year old man and I guess maybe if somebody's listening to this now and thinking oh I am actually going to start broaching those subjects I mean obviously you, you can't sort of strong arm somebody and insist on having that conversation can you give any sort of little sort of maybe hints how you could gently start that conversation well I've, I've heard lots of people talk about how they did it so this is this is words from the wise rather than words from me so oh, words from the wise Catherine right. that's the, that's okay. the title of your next book <laughs> yes <laughs> so one of the things that's an interesting thing about how long we live is that we now almost certainly if we have a, an extended family will have adult great nieces and nephews or adult grandchildren Mm. And you remember when you were little and you were naughty and it was so naughty that you couldn't tell your mum, but you could tell your Auntie Mary or you could tell your Nana. Yes, it was one step well, removed from time. the heat, wasn't it? It's yeah. payback time. So now Auntie Mary or Nana can have this conversation with you, which is, I really need to talk to your dad about what I want to happen when mm. I get more sick and frail. 
and it's upsetting him. Could you just have a word in his ear and say, we need to talk about it? Mm. Yeah. And and you're right, that one, set, that one step removed. These are really loving relationships, aren't they, mm. between significant beloved elders and the generation that's two generations behind them. But that kind of the, the love and responsibility for the well-being of each other that's in the parent-child relationship that gradually flips to a mirror image of itself as parents become older and more frail and children see themselves now as the looker-afterer. Mm. Um, sometimes that can just be too hard. So sometimes you need to start the conversation somewhere else in the family and then recruit help to get yeah, the conversation right. started. Uh, the other thing I think that happens is people think, right, I've got to have the conversation. I've got to have that conversation. So they get themselves all tensed up that today I'm going to go, I'm going to go and see it, and I'm going to have the conversation. And actually, a conversation is um, a consent process between two people. You can't decide to have the conversation. It's not, mm. it's not fair. Yeah. Whether you're the dying person or you're the relative who wants to know, Neither mm. of you can impose that conversation on the other. We don't have that right. But what we could do, today could be the day where you invite somebody to have the conversation and you leave them with a bit of control. So, Mum, I'm worrying about all these things I'm reading in the newspapers and hearing on the radio about COVID. COVID's been a great promoter mm. of these conversations. And I realise if the doctors asked me what you would want, I don't know. And also, if the doctor's asked you what I would want, you don't know. So sometime in the next couple of weeks when you feel like you could bear it, can I talk to you about what I would want and will you tell me what you would want? Yeah, that's such a good idea because it gives somebody time to process because it's quite a big thing to just drop in someone's lap. Right, we're going to talk about our death, yeah, <laughs> what's going to happen when we both die. But, yeah, to give somebody that, can we, can we think about that in the next couple of weeks? They've got time to sort of process it, haven't and they? And they've also got the right to say no. Oh, I don't think I want yeah. to talk about that. And then, of course, so the next, the next step in that is, well, even if you don't want to tell me about what you want... Do you I... mind listening to me mm. talking aloud about what I want and giving me your advice about it? Yeah. Because actually, once I start to talk to you about it and I say, well, you know, I, I definitely would want this and I definitely wouldn't want that, you are going to reflect back to me, oh, I wouldn't want that. Yes. Okay, yeah. so, so now start, so... I've started to collect some bits of information about what you think, even though we're not doing the shining the spotlight on you and talking to you about it, you're just reflecting back to me about my choices and my decisions. Mm. So right. it hasn't got to be this really big deal where you steal yourself up, you go round, I've brought, I've brought cakes, mum, we're going to sit down and yeah. talk death. Um, <laughs> yeah. Although talking, a cake when you're talking death is a really good idea. It's and, essential, and, I reckon. Yeah. I reckon yeah. it's a great excuse. <laughs> 
But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I'm just thinking about my, my in-laws who are, are in their sort of 60s and they're dealing with my, my husband's grandparents are sort of mid to late 80s really, really ill, still living at home in the three-bedroom sort of semi that they have had all their life. Like, you know, mm. my, my grandma-in-law is crawling up the stairs every night to bed. And um, there's a there's an element of denial that's going on. And I'm wondering, is that is that a British thing? Or is that like a, is that just where we are at the moment where nobody, there's just, there's just an element of denial in the whole family that this is like what has to happen? Uh, you know, what what awful phone call are we going to get next that is going to sort of say, oh God, we, we should have got ahead of this. Do, do you know what I mean? Do, yeah. do you find that? Well, do you know what? The rest of the story about the family in the emergency room is mm. that, the, the, that the adult sons don't know what dad would want. Mm. And then mum says, let him go. We've been mm. talking about this for a long time. We've always hoped that each of us would be the first one to die so we wouldn't have to live without each other but we also know that actually there's no point in struggling against it when you've reached the age that we've reached it's going to happen we don't talk about it a lot but we've talked about it ah so those conversations have been going on at home between that couple yeah and so many elderly people will say this that actually of course, of course, I'm going to die. I'm in my 80s. I'm in my 90s. And I've had lots of people say to me, you know, when the time comes that it's happening, um, don't take the opportunity for me to die away from me. Don't, mm. m- don't make me half better. So I'm living a miserable existence. Yeah. Let me go. And those were the words that, sh- that this lady used. Let him go. We've talked oh. about this. And that's what he would want. And so that's really important. And, that, and I guess that comes back round to, I think it was Louise's question. About the legal issues, the legal yeah, issues. around decision-making, yeah. yeah. Because as my understanding is that you can't, you can't demand treatment, but you can certainly decline anything that is offered to you. So, yeah, could, could, could you just explain that um, a little bit about why you might, might want to decline certain treatments and, you know, and, and, and why it's important to get that sort of legally... Documented. Absolutely. So a lot of people have had the experience of going to the doctors with a sore throat and say, I need some antibiotics. And the doctor looks in your throat and says, nah, mm. that's a virus. Antibiotics aren't going to make it any better. And the more antibiotics there are out in the population, the more bacteria mm. get resistant to them. And they are the treatment for bacteria. I'm not going to give you an antibiotic. No, oh, come on, doc. I always get an antibiotic. Well, no, not today, because it's not the right treatment. Mm. And the truth is that the law says that nobody can demand a treatment that isn't appropriate for the condition they've got. So there's a really simple 
um, example of it, which is talking about antibiotics. So the same thing goes for um, any other illness. So for example, if you've got a really, really bad chest and also now you get appendicitis and you, you know, but in my neck of the woods, we've got a lot of retired miners, so we've got a lot of people with really bad chests. The best treatment for appendicitis is surgery, but this person's chest is so bad that mm. having an operation will kill him. You know, the anaesthetic will kill him. So actually, that surgery isn't the right thing to do. And it's no good the person saying, oh, well, you know, I want to have it, I want to take the risk and all the rest of it. It's an inappropriate treatment right. for them. <clears throat> so, if on the other hand, uh, I, I'm looking after a person and suddenly they become very, very unwell and I think, oh, actually, do you know what, I need one of my intensive care colleagues to come and see this person because I think that actually they probably need a ventilator mm. to just help them with their breathing for a few days while we get them over this crisis and the intensive care doctor comes down and says yes that's absolutely right i would think this person is probably going to need support with their breathing for two three four days and then we'll get them back off the ventilator and get them back to your ward and then you can work on getting them better to go home so we offer that treatment it's absolutely fine for the patient to say i am not going to have a tube down my throat and have a mm. ventilator no thank you I understand why you want to do it. I get that I might die if you don't do it. Mm. I'm not going to have it. So we have a right to refuse a treatment that is appropriate and being offered to us, but we don't have a right to demand a treatment that That's isn't appropriate, appropriate and isn't being offered to us. Right. And so you can make a list of the things that you don't want and the circumstances that you don't want them in, mm. uh, which is called an advance decision to refuse treatment or ADRT. And there are mm -hmm. uh, websites that you can go to, uh, to to make them. You don't need a lawyer. In fact, the best person to help you do it is your district nurse or a doctor um, because mm -hmm. it's not really about the law. It's about the sorts of things that might happen to you. Mm, and right. for one of these documents to work at the point where it needs to be used, it's really important that it's written in a way that talks about you and your health and the emergencies that might happen to you. So you can't really have mm. a generic one and the websites right. that you can use um, do actually help you to tailor it so that it so that it, it talks about your own health mm, right so you can say I never want to be on a ventilator um, if my heart gives out I don't want to have cardiopulmonary resuscitation um, mm you can try to say something like, I never want to be admitted to hospital. Um, that's the really difficult one because it might be that the admission to hospital is because your relatives are so exhausted mm. that there's no care for you at home. Yeah. Mm. Um, and it's mm. then not really very clear whether you anticipated never going to hospital because you knew your relatives would always be there for you. You can't or whether foresee that. Really you? anticipated, yeah, yeah, just being a, being on your own at home. So it mm. can be a little bit difficult. So you can make an advanced decision to refuse treatment, and provided when you lose capacity to make a decision, so that's when it becomes alive. The mm. circumstances you've described match the circumstances that are happening now. That makes it applicable 
then it has to be followed. People cannot give you a treatment that you've refused in advance if your ADRT is valid and applicable. To be valid, you have to have signed it, dated it, and ask somebody to witness that you've signed it. They don't have to read the document. They just have to witness that here you are signing it. And you must include the words, even if I'm so sick that I might die, or even if my life would be at risk. Otherwise, as soon as you're teetering on the brink of death, it becomes inapplicable because it's always judged to be in somebody's best interests not to die, or almost always judged to be in their best interests. So that, I think... I think that's really important to know because also it takes those decisions away from, say, you know, your your partner, your husband, your wife, whatever. It, well, you interesting it, you should it, say that. Of course, they can't make those decisions by law anyway. No. So that's oh, right. the other okay. thing that we really need to talk about, that everybody assumes that the person whom I name as my next of kin also gets to make decisions about me if I'm not well enough. No, no they don't. No, they don't. Nobody right. in... In, the, in English and Welsh law, so we're one jurisdiction, and also in Scottish law, um, can make a decision about another par- another person unless they've got parental responsibility mm. for them and the person is still a minor. So once right. you pass your 18th birthday, no matter mm. how dependent on your parents you are, so if you're par- a person, for example, with a, a long-term intellectual disability, mm. once you pass your 18th birthday, your parents can no longer make medical decisions on your behalf. Right. right. So the only person okay. who can make medical decisions on our behalf Please. is a person who's been named and got the paperwork that we have right. signed and registered as our attorney. And so in England and Wales, that would be an attorney for health and welfare, um, which includes decisions about life-sustaining matters. Otherwise, again... They can't make the life or death decisions, and that's a separate right. little bit of the attorney form. Um, and so, the, all the, there are places online where we can go to, to um, you know, get like the template information about this and, and yeah. templates. And yeah, things there, like that. there so, are, and yeah, and I'll on the sure on the those. NHS uh, website, there is um, that there is a link to a variety of organisations that provide those templates. Um, and okay. if I was really organised, I'd have that written down, and I don't. We don't worry, because I'll get in, it. I can, I can and I'll send put them that in the show notes. Yeah. yeah, yeah, fabulous. That would be great. Thank you. I mean, it's interesting talking about the, the COVID um, uh, pandemic that's happened, because I guess, you know, MPs and, and TV presenters, when they are reporting on the deaths each day and those numbers, especially, God, going back in sort of March, April, those numbers oh. were just eye-watering. And just remembering that each one of those digits is actually an individual life with a family and and i guess do you think have you seen that covid has changed the way that people are talking about death or how we do how we view death i think i think it really has hasn't it mm. so what was what was really interesting to me just kind of following it as as a phenomenon as you're talking about it now is that our media are not very good at using the d words are they people pass yeah. and pass away mm-hmm. and are lost um and suddenly we were talking about deaths on primetime TV news. Mm. And what was fascinating to me was that they were completely depersonalised. It was all data. It was all numbers. It was bar like charts, you, wasn't it? Bar charts. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and like you, I'm just thinking, all of those people, all of those families, sometimes mm. several people in one family. Mm. And mm. in those very early stages when visiting wasn't allowed 
at all. Mm. Um, and and it does look as though the most likely transmission of COVID within hospitals is coming from visitors now that we're allowing visitors and right. not from staff. So that is really interesting. And it was it was draconian, but probably necessary until we understood early on. But how heartbreaking for those families and still heartbreaking because normally we assemble around a deathbed, a whole mm. uh, important group of people. And we, well, I'm going to use the word family, but we all know that we might not be related to our closest people, um, our dearest people. I often talk about uh, who's your village, you know, the mm. people who really matter to us most. And we're allowed one visitor or possibly two visitors. How awful that is for families because we're not able to bear witness, we're not able to watch the process happening. We can't reassure ourselves that this person was comfortable and mm. safe during their dying because we weren't there to see it. And staff working so hard yeah. to ensure that people aren't on their own, to ensure that when people are awake there is companionship. Um, hospitals investing in um, tablets and screens so that they can help mm. people to have conversations so that they can help people be able to see each other and talk to each other. Uh, you know, a dying granddad listening to his children singing to him. Oh, just, it's heartbreaking. Mm. And yet it's inspiring to see staff rising to it in yeah. this incredible way. And what they're finding is that they are, they are really sad. They are so sad about the separation of families. In fact, they're sadder. You know, I've been I've been back and talking to people and doing some staff support over the last few months. The thing that struck me is that more than the deaths themselves, mm. the separation of families during the dying is the thing that really has torn at staff's hearts. Doctors, nurses, physios, OTs, everybody across the They've board. They've probably seen nothing ever, ever like it, have they? Absolutely. But it also means that they've been at deathbeds mm. over and over and over mm. again. Now, dying from COVID breaks the pattern a little bit in that uh, people don't seem to lose consciousness until much further on in the process. Right. Um, so while they're awake, we need to be helping to manage that sense of needing to work hard to breathe, which fortunately, it turns out, it's not particularly difficult to manage the breathlessness. So we can help people not to feel that they're struggling. Um, and they are doing that flu thing of sleeping a lot and then waking up. But mm -hmm. they seem to be in a stage where you can't quite tell whether this person's just going to have a really bad flu and next week we'll be waving him off as he leaves the hospital or whether sometime in the next couple of days this other thing that's going to happen, which is the sudden change that happens in COVID, and this person's suddenly going to become much more wet, much more unwell and sick enough to die and may need to go to the intensive care unit or may have said they don't want to be ventilated or maybe a person whose body is already not well enough to survive the assault that it is to be mm. ventilated and, and put on an intensive care unit. That Your body takes a real hammering yeah. during that period and some people would never recover from it. So staff have been mm. doing their best to make sure people are not feeling lonely, to make sure that families are as linked up as they can be. Mm. You know, a particular member of staff will be phoning the same family regularly to give them updates and then they're having that telephone conversation thing um yeah that you two were talking about when mm -hmm. you were getting used to doing your podcast 
remotely mm. where yeah. you whose whose turn is it to talk and and so these are very tender conversations you can't just mm. unleash all that information on a family you've got to give it a little bit at a time you've got to check that they've got what you've said so far before you give the next bit of information so there's a lot of silence mm. in these conversations yeah. and holding that silence for people is also really important because otherwise they don't know whether you know you might just be writing a medicine chart in the background you you need we need them to yeah. know that you've got my undivided attention yeah. for this this is so important for you and that makes it really important to me so mm -hmm. if they were in front of us and we were having that conversation they'd be able to see that we would be looking at them that we might be changing yeah. position in our seat but we'd be giving body language signals that say it's okay you just take your time i'm here for you and this is your time and when you're ready we'll speak again so that's what we have to actually literally yeah. say out loud mm. on the phone but also remembering that the silence is the time when they are really doing the work of processing and understanding what you've yeah. just said so we need to be mm. saying bland things the things that are the equivalent of just shifting in our seat so that it's saying i'm still here mm. but it's not saying give me attention it's saying you, know, you carry on thinking about what you're thinking about yeah and that's what and that's what and that's what you've been doing uh, over this time isn't it is is helping um, medical staff understand how to do all of that so is that correct? yeah I, I was mm. i was really glad to be asked by nhs england fairly early on in the pandemic to to help nationally with preparing some training materials so there was a small group of us um, preparing training materials for these conversations that are breaking unwelcome news um, and we mm. used research um, evidence to write them so this is a really really uh, interesting uh, research and actually do you know what these would be fascinating people for you to talk to for your mm. podcast so um, <gasps> Professor Ruth Parry um, at the University of Derby and she's a conversations analysis specialist oh. and what she, what her team does is to tape conversations between um, patients or, or family members and their clinical advisor doctors nurses whoever um, and then having talked to the patient or the family afterwards to find out how useful the conversation was for them and how safe they mm. felt and how much they felt they trusted the person who was talking to them they then mm. analyzed this videotape for how it was paced tone of voice yeah position people were sitting in how much the the doctor or the nurse picked up and used the language that the person they were talking to was using rather than using medical jargon and those sorts of things and there's mm. all sorts of tiny little micro behaviors that help to say i'm here for you and my heart hurts for you yeah mm. and i want to make this as easy for you as it can be even though it's terrible because i'm telling you this really unwelcome mm. piece of news so mm. it was fascinating to to have a framework built from their research to be able to present um yeah. for for people in the nhs generally and then to go back into my own local organization where i where i used to work in the same hospital where i met that man on the trolley with the sons who didn't know what mm. he wanted yeah um and and run some very structured training about these very tender conversations 
including, of course, that a lot of them have to be on the phone. So I was having people in, we were trying to get people in a lecture theatre, but sitting socially distanced. You've got to imagine in your mind, it looks like a really bad film where not many people wanted to come and sit in the audience. Looks like one of my gigs, Catherine, is what it looks like. <laughs> yeah, Amy does stand up comedy. <laughs> so, so, and then saying, okay, so you're going to, you, you first practice, just chat to each other. This is, this is the, the principles that we're using. This is the framework. Okay, now your second go, we're going to change. This is the news that needs to be delivered, but this time it's a telephone conversation. So turn your backs on each other while you have this conversation and everybody's saying oh isn't it hard isn't it hard really? to pace yeah, it of course. when when do you speak when do you not speak then you both speak at the same time and then there's like oh i'm sorry and mm. so yes and it's like learning what, a new language isn't it, it? Really, and i guess really yeah, is. yeah and in fact what's happened is we've we've turned to video consultations which you know if somebody said to me six months ago we should be doing outpatients by video that's appalling we should have people yeah. in front of us and be kind mm. now, actually, yeah. because when they do come in to see us, we've got a mask, we've got a visor, we're mm. a penny, we're in gloves. It's hard to speak clearly because mm. of all of the, the, the masky yeah. stuff that's yeah. in front of you, in front of your mouth. Your throat gets terribly dry five minutes into the conversation because you're working really hard to produce your voice. In mm. fact, our best conversations now are video conversations. Yeah. It's wow. astonishing. Yeah. I think it just shows as humans we are actually quite adaptable, aren't we? We, we mm. have to we have to just adjust and adapt and pivot and innovate. And and it, obviously the it, it it's taken something like this for for that bit of training to happen within the NHS. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing. Thank you so much for all your all, all the all your pearls of wisdom today. I think it's been really helpful to understand how we can prepare for a peaceful death mm. because that's that's the thing i think is that we just we don't really think about it as being peaceful and positive you know um for all of the reasons that that we talked mm. about and you know and and actually we can have sort of positive cheerful conversations uh, around it um and also really reassuring to appreciate that normal human dying isn't as bad as as we as we probably think it is. Do you know so, that's I often say. You know, dying probably not as bad as you think. It's not no. going to be your best day, <laughs> <laughs> but it's probably not going to be your worst day. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you yeah. know things worse than this have happened? It's it's so yeah. I mean, the whole it, you you explaining that physiological process that happens is just the complete opposite to what. You know, I would have thought, and, and I'm sure lots of people would think. So it, it, it's really reassuring to yeah to hear all of that. Yeah, and I think so, it's it's important to say really that every now and again there's death that's really difficult. Just like every mm. now and again there's a birth that goes horribly wrong. Yeah. Mm. And the problem is that those are the things that make the news. Those are the things that get into newspapers. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it's a little bit like if. If the only thing that you knew about air travel was what you read in the newspapers, you would never get on mm. a plane. Yeah. But mm. the truth is that all of the planes that take off and land without event, other than probably being a bit late, never get reported. But every mm. plane that has a near miss or does fall out of the sky definitely gets reported lots and lots yeah. and lots. So there's something about restoring the knowledge, isn't there, so that it's a public understanding of dying and we can reassure each other and we can encourage each mm. other but also 
you know, that wise doula at the birthbed saying, this is mm. normal, this is okay, you're yeah. doing great. Oh, this, this isn't normal, this is not yeah. right, get the midwife. Mm. And we need to be doing yeah. that at deathbeds as well. This is okay, yeah. this is safe, you're all right, we're all here. I don't yeah. like the way she's wincing there. I think she's got a pain every time we try and roll her over. Let's get the nurse yeah. now to evaluate that because that's not okay. And is, we is make it okay. Sorry, is there a network of people who are kind of doing that job that you do? It, it... There are death doulas. That, well, yeah, so they're... so I am I am a patron of End of Life Doula UK. Let me oh, say, are you? I am indeed. I'm very proud wow. patron. And there are other similar organisations. Soul Midwives is another fantastic organisation doing Brilliant. wonderful work. And what the death doulas do is sometimes from quite early on offering that kind of companionship and safety mm. I, I talked to a, a fantastic uh, woman and her doula a, about a year ago where um, the patient's husband used to get so upset in outpatient clinic that she couldn't focus on what the doctor was saying to her because she was so worried about how her husband was taking it mm. so she started going to her outpatient appointments with her doula instead and then they would sit down together and together, reframe explain. what did the, what did the yeah. doctor actually say because two sets of ears when they're listening properly yeah. is better than one and then they'd yeah. work out okay so what did the doctor say and how are we going to tell that yeah. to the husband so he can take yeah. it in without being overly distressed it, right through to yeah. eventually that fantastic doula um offering support as that woman was dying about a year later mm. and by then the doula knew the family really well. Mm. They were able to support the husband. They were able to mm. generate the safe space. They were able to make sure that all of the medicines that were about symptom management were being appropriately given. They were able to you know, make cups of tea and meals as yeah. people came in and out. You know, in the old fashioned way, when people are dying and the family are allowed to visit, that we miss so much now that visiting mm. is so limited. But yeah, doulas yeah. can make an enormous difference. And everything you're saying there is just so similar yeah. to being a, a birth doula because when I'm, because um, I obviously will be, um, I'll get to know the couple uh, beforehand so that I am somebody that they trust and, you know, has knowledge. Um, and then my role I always see is is to support really the, the partner just as much as the woman giving birth, sometimes even more so, because, you know, because they need exactly what you were saying there about, yeah, this is normal, this isn't normal, you know, um, reassurance. So so a, 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 something really to think about, I, oh, would, you're, I, you're, I would say. You're absolutely right. And something that's really important around a deathbed, it, again, coming back to midwifing, is that thing of somebody saying to the people gathered around the bed, guys, you're doing a great job. Mm. Look at this mm. space that is full of love and tenderness that mm. you have created around this bed. And I loved as I was arriving today that I could hear you laughing and you're playing cards and you're, you're telling stories of ridiculous things that happened years ago. And yeah. you're making this a safe space for this person and to really have these conversations and think about this uh, all of this and how you want this experience to be must have ramifications on your loved one's mental health going forward mm. if they have been able to have that as a positive uh, experience surely i mean well i guess good that, for them i guess part of the 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 art of dying well 
is that we deliver the bereaved into bereavement in the best possible yeah. state, don't we? Mm. You can't mm. make it not be a farewell. You can't make it not be sad. If there's love, mm. there's grief. It's just that's that's the deal. Um, mm. But to feel that nothing was left unsaid, to feel that you were able to be as much in attendance as you were able to be, um, to feel that you've seen a, a life that you loved ended with dignity and mm. comfort is a really important start into the mayhem and misery that is the process of grieving. And it's really mm. important that we enable people to do that. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Um, thank you. It was lovely to, to meet you, you online thank and you. chat to you. Um, yes, lovely yes. to talk to you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Produced by Louise Daniels. Visit louise-daniels.com. Hiya, it's Rich Wilson, host of the excellent podcast Insane in the Membrane. I have a brand new podcast coming your way called Insane in the Fembrane, where I sit down with strong, confident, powerful women and find out what it takes to be a woman. Because uh, I don't really know, to be honest. I, had, I thought I did, thought I had an idea, but I don't. So our first guest is star of Top Chef and soon to be on Netflix, Crazy Delicious, it's Carla Hall. Prime example. I go out, I'm like, I'm gonna be a part of this yard thing. You know, <laughs> I'm gonna go out there. Okay, he cuts the grass, so I'm looking at those pine trees. It's like nine of them. I'm looking at those pine trees. I'm like, ah, oh, they're taking over our yard. So I'm gonna go in and cut the base of the trees off, right? And just so it can be really pretty. But before I got to that, I said, I think I'm gonna cut the tips off. I had a rope. I said, Matthew, let's just go off and cut the tip off of one of those trees. They're too tall. He's like, I don't think that's going to work. I said, you haven't tried. <laughs> I go out with my rope. I didn't even get changed into a T-shirt. I have on a regular shirt because it's yeah, going right. to be easy. <laughs> I throw that rope up. I'm trying to lasso it to pull it down so we can just snip, snip. And I videotaped it. Just there was a video camera and I wasn't even thinking about the video running. I went back to look at it. Matthew was standing at the, this. Matthew was standing there looking at me like, this ain't gonna work, but I'm gonna let you do it, honey. I'm gonna let you do it. <laughs> and I am laughing at the video. It just captured this exact thing that you're talking about. Yeah. You know, I went yeah, out yeah. to do, to step into his role. He's like looking at me like, that's not gonna work. That's not gonna work, you know? Yeah. And yeah. I'm like, I had, I had to see it for myself, it's like, you're right. But if he had said, Carl, it's not gonna work and just beat me down, I would have I would have just pushed and pushed and pushed. So that's episode one of Insane in the Fembrane. Go and listen, subscribe, tell your friends. Witness history at Roland Garros, where old rivalries meet new talent on the clay battleground. Tennis Channel Plus is your place to watch. Stream every court from your phone or smart TV live in HD. Experience three weeks of unparalleled access as the world's top players in tennis face off to see if the veterans maintain their dominance or if a fresh face rises to challenge them. Daily live coverage of the French Open begins Monday, May 20th. Stream it now with Tennis Channel Plus to be there when it happens. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.